Hi, and welcome to the Social Contact Today podcast, hosted and created by me, Jacqueline Courtney, a financial services compliance professional. This is a podcast where I look at current affairs to question the state of the social contract right now, and whether we, the people, have given government or business or the mysterious powers that be far too much power and influence. Hopefully through this podcast, we can imagine a better, fairer and more transparent society. So if this is your first time listening, please feel free to subscribe so that you can be updated whenever a new episode is released. And also give us a follow at Contract Today on Twitter. So again, welcome to The Social Contract Today, the podcast where I look at the state of the social contract in our world right now. On today's show, I turn to the question of, to whom does a social contract apply? In answering this, I think it will take a few episodes, and it's a question that I'd like to return to, as I believe there are a number of groups who are automatically excluded from the social contract, either on the grounds of race, gender or ability. So in this first part of, to whom does the social contract theory apply? We look at race. Given that our very constitution if there is one, is based on the idea of the social contract. It must be asked what the place of people of different races is in this agreement. It's important to me that we consider the social standing of this particular key characteristic, which is now protected in our society through legislation, and that we consider whether this progressive people-centred theory, which is the social contract theory, whether it makes any concessions for different forms of mankind in terms of race. I hope you enjoy delving further into the social contract as we take a deeper analysis to question whether the social contract ever had non-white people in mind and how this compares to the current system we have today. To ask the fundamental question, to whom does a social contract theory apply? So in the previous episode, I talked about the prominent philosophers of social contract theory and how their ideas compare to one another. I said that the social contract theory came about during the 16th century and it continued to rise in popularity throughout the 17th and 18th century. Now, if you're into history as I am, you'll know that from the 16th and 17th century, that is the 15 and 1600s, this was a time of huge exploration for Europeans. It's often what is referred to as the age of discovery. This age marked the start of extensive overseas exploration by European explorers such as Prince Henry of Portugal, the Navigator, Christopher Columbus of Spain, who we know a lot about (laughs) in terms of America, and many, many others. And they were all essentially responding to the increasing capitalist desires in Europe that required new and alternative trade routes to the ones that, that, that were in place already. I strongly believe that this set the foundation of the global economic world we now know. But sadly, for some, European discovery of new and faraway lands also brought with it the triangular transatlantic slave trade, the eventual adoption of colonialism, massacres of swathes of Native Americans and holocausts of Aboriginal populations. Therefore, for the people already inhabiting the places considered by Europeans as new and faraway lands, The age of exploration or discovery was an unfortunate interruption into their civilizations. Very quickly, these European explorers went from trading goods peacefully to gradually using brute force to take goods and then later to take people. The point I'm attempting to make here is that in all this 
exploration and as it was going on, the likes of Hobbes, Locke and Rousseau were live and kicking. Surely they would have been all too aware of the matter of slavery. And so it's important to me that we discuss the relationship between what they wrote about, which was mostly equality of man, and the matter of equality in their day. Now, there isn't a whole lot of stuff out there about the direct views of Thomas Hobbes on race, but his position on absolutism, which if you remember from the last episode is might is always right, the powerful and what they say is what goes. This suggests that he would have had probably very little inkling to consider races of other kinds at all. But there is a bit, fortunately, on Locke and Rousseau and what they thought. Starting with Locke, he didn't write much per se about race. And it's intriguing that race plays no role in his work, given that an ancestor of his, with whom he also shares a first as well as last name, also called John Locke, spelt L-O-K instead of L-O-C-K-E, such as the philosopher's name, John Locke with the L-O-K, that is, He was one of the first English explorers to venture into West Africa and during his lifetime he worked closely with Queen Elizabeth I to establish a way to conduct slavery on African shores. In fact, in 1554, John Locke the Mercer or Explorer was captain of three ships, the Trinity, the Bartholomew and the John Evangelist. And as soon as they touched the coast of Africa, it is said that every place of consequence was touched. And in the return voyage back to England, the cargo included more than 400 pounds weight of gold, 36 butts of guinea pepper and 250 elephant tusks, as well as an elephant skull of such size that a man could scarcely lift it. This account of one of the first English voyages to Africa mentions that Locke's ships also brought home five Africans from present day Ghana to learn English and act as interpreters on future trading voyages. So do you see why I think it's odd, really odd, that John Locke the philosopher, one of England's foremost theorists about democracy, fails to mention in any way, shape or form the matter of race in his writings on the equality of the individual? This question becomes even trickier to answer when we consider that in his own lifetime, John Locke worked on behalf of slavery and colonialism, and he owned stock in the Royal African Company, the organisation which ran the African slave trade for England. Not only that, but before Locke wrote his seminal work, The Two Treaties of Government, he also drafted the Carolina Constitutions and its protections for slavery. Now, in defence of Locke, author Holly Burer, who penned an essay questioning this very point entitled Slavery Entangled Philosophy, in it she reminds us that the implication is not so much personal hypocrisy. So for her, it's important that we point to Western liberalism overall and its promotion of slavery, rather than pointing to Locke for his own hypocrisy. And thinking of it as personal hypocrisy, therefore, Holly Brewer writes, this is a misapprehension of Locke's position. In terms of the Carolina constitutions, she says, Locke was just a secretary. He drafted a legal document and he composed it for the eight men who desired that the government of the province may be made most agreeable to the monarchy under which it existed. Now, whilst I take Holly's point that the principles the Carolina constitutions espoused, such as slavery, both predated Locke's involvement and reflected the ideals of the owners, 
And I also agree that it wouldn't have been very safe for Locke to openly criticise the king during the period in which he lived. And the king, by the way, at the time was King Charles II, a man who advocated for slavery so much that he went to the extent of offering rewards of land to those who purchased slaves, offering to some people 50 acres of land per slave. As much as I understand how difficult it must have been to oppose someone like this openly, though I wasn't there, obviously, I do however feel that for someone who lived in that time as Locke did, when the value of the black and brown body was so insignificant that they were treated as mere property, much like the way we look at material assets, I feel that for Locke, the plight of African slaves or Native American groups, for them to never make an appearance in his writings on Western democracy, I feel that his social contract theory fundamentally fails to condemn this practice enough, a plight which was not unknown to him. Before he began openly opposing the ruling elite on matters of democracy, Locke spent most of the decade prior as a personal secretary to the guy who ran the Council on Foreign Plantations. And in this position, he wrote records mostly about African slaves. And there is transcripts there showing Locke's handwriting as clerk, transcribing the word African slaves over and over again. And there's this brilliant quote by James Farr in his 1986 journal article, The Problem of Slavery in Locke, in Locke's political thought. Farr states, The preeminent theorist of natural rights and human freedom was himself a merchant adventurer in the African slave trade and an instrument of English colonial policy who proposed legislation to ensure that every free man of Carolina shall have absolute power and authority over his Negro slaves. Not only does this shock our 20th century moral sensibilities, it must also send shockwaves through our very understanding of Locke's political thoughts. For contradiction lies at the heart of it. How could Locke's passionate advocacy of universal natural rights be squatted with an institution that annihilated those rights altogether. Locke never addressed, much less resolved, this contradiction. On Afro-American slavery, silence seems to have been his principal bequest. Wow, what a quote. And it's in my opinion, therefore, that when it came to the matter of Western democracy, there was no place in Locke's view for the African, or generally the non-white, and so despite Holly Brewer's strong argument, I can't help but think along the same lines of Samuel Johnson, who simply asked, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? I also can't help but believe that whenever Locke refers to the individual in his interpretation of the social contract, that he is simply not talking about someone like me, an African. Whew. Okay, on to Rousseau then. In a journal article entitled John Jack Rousseau and the Negro, written by Mercer Cook, an African-American diplomat and professor who was the first American ambassador to the Gambia after its independence. It's written in the Journal of Negro History, if you'd like to look it up. Mercer Cook poses an important question. When discussing what Rousseau had to say about the circumstance of the, that black people of the day found themselves in, Mercer asks... What of the economical Jean-Jacques Rousseau, enemy of inequality? What did he have to say about the plight of the Negro? Well, based on Rousseau's movements, we know that he had probably very little contact with Africa, given that most of his travels took place within Europe. 
However, it's likely that he would have actually come in contact with prominent free Africans of the day, for example, Ignatius Sancho, because he was a friend of Rousseau's friend, Garrick, the revered actor. So, so Sancho, we think, may have been present, for example, when Rousseau visited England in 1766 and 1767. But whether or not he did have contact with black people, in few of his works does he mention black people or Negroes, as was the fashionable term at the time. But when he does, he actually says some really incendiary and eugenics-leaning things, such as, It appears that the organisation of the brain is less perfect at the two extremes. Negroes and Laplanders do not have the intellect of Europeans, end quote. Is it possible that Rousseau saw the world in the medieval cartographic traditions when non-European spaces were seen as being in need of Europeanisation in moral and religious terms? Is it possible that he was one of those people who referred to places like Africa as the Dark Continent? This quote makes it so hard to believe otherwise. And it's highly questionable whether someone who could even think in this way could ever for a second have considered anyone other than the intellectual Europeans in his writings on the social contract theory. Mercer Cook's paper also includes a quote from Bernardine de Saint-Paris, who was a faithful disciple and friend of Rousseau's. Nonetheless, he voices his criticism of many of the great French writers of the crusading 18th century who almost unanimously condemned the practice of slavery, but were virtually mute when it came to the specific case of Negro servitude, which, for one reason or another, failed to arouse the impassioned and effective attacks which they had waged on other evils. To this critique, on the one hand, Mercer Cook asserts that, yes, Rousseau made no special plea on behalf of Africans, and he thought this was likely because in Rousseau's day, slavery was not of a racial phenomenon, with Africans forming a small minority of enslaved humanity. But on the other hand, Rousseau's work Contract Social, where he says, in whatever manner we consider the matter, the right of slavery is nil, not only because it is not legitimate, but also because it is absurd, without meaning. The words slavery and right are absolutely contradictory. They exclude each other. What Rousseau says here makes it seem as though he felt that no race can justify enslaving another race, even if they had conquered them. So in conclusion, I think he didn't readily discuss the matter of Euro-African slavery. But such musings as the one I've read out are the kind which inspired followers of Rousseau, such as Englishman Thomas Day, who dedicated a poem to Rousseau called The Dying Negro. And so it can be said that Rousseau as a social contract theorist, had inadvertently sown the seeds for a bountiful future in which the Negro could not fail to share. He'd sown this into many revolutionary leaders such as Robespierre and Lafayette, who were all completely inspired and besotted by Rousseau in his writings, and who, who were people who went on to insist that the Negro should be included in the newly won liberty, equality and fraternity. However, this suggests that prior to such time, the African, or the Negro, was not considered free, equal, or part of a fraternity, which still keeps the point there that Rousseau did not have Africans or non-whites in mind. And therefore we can argue that in Rousseau's day, it would be an unlikely event for him, as much as he was an enemy of inequality, to single out 
the matter of black African servitude. Nonetheless, given its prominence in his day, this matter of invisibility of the non-European in Rousseau's writings of democracy and libertarianism is what gives credence, I think, to the work of Charles W. Mills on the theory of the racial contract, an idea encapsulated by the black American saying, when white people say justice, they mean just us. Charles W. Mills, he's a Jamaican philosopher born in 1951, and he wrote an essay titled The Racial Contract. And in it, he suggested that the social contract theory largely ignored all those who were not white, and that the white men who spoke on the theory largely did not grasp or consider the role in which their privilege as white men gave them in their ability to openly share their views. Essentially, Mills's argument was that racism was at the core of the social contract theory. Now, I must pause here and say, when I found all that I've been talking about out about Rousseau's sort of eugenic sounding quotes, Locke's hypocrisy and um, the racial contract, I was completely floored because for years I talked to people and some of whom I'd consider or would consider themselves to be philosophers. And I cringe at the thought that how laughable I must have seemed to them with my over enthusiasm as a young black girl for the theory which um, seemed to see me or people people like me as invisible. Anyway, that was just a side note. Back to Charles. I think he has a point in that the way Western societies and governments function is predicated on the notion of white supremacy. And he presents the social contract theory as a non-ideal polity for all mankind. And it's completely non-ideal when you think about anyone other than white people. Looking at Mills's racial contract theory allows us to engage with the social contract theory as a mainstream Western political theory, which was developed during the era of slavery and helps answer the question at hand that if theorists were so conscious and socially minded, what did they have to say about the transatlantic slave trade that was raging on? When the social contract theorists talk about the collective body, Mills says, they are only really talking about citizens. So if at the time when the social contract theory was established, if then the black bodies were seen as property and therefore legally as people in bondage to other people, therefore the collective body in terms of the social contract theory is only made up of free people or people who were free back then, who were mostly, if not all, white. This idea is what Mills terms as the microspace of the body, in noting that the social contract actually differentiates between the persons and the subpersons, the citizens and the non-citizens, who inhabit these polities, and do so embodied in envelopes of skin, flesh and hair, and it upholds the white male body as the norm, perhaps with the exception of Immanuel Kant, also a key theorist of the social contract theory, who defines persons simply as rational beings without any apparent restrictions of gender or race. So for him, anyone is involved in the social contract theory. It's completely raceless. It's completely genderless, which is great. When we're talking about European liberalism, this is really restricted for most social contract theorists to only white persons with black people and others excluded by race 
from the promise of the liberal project of modernity. This is especially so in the context of black people who, due to the degradation of slavery, brought with it for the first time in history, unlike the biblical slavery of Israelites, unlike the slavery of ancient Greece, Rome, or the medieval Mediterranean. Slavery, when it happened to Africans in the triangular slave trade, it acquired a colour. In the European space, the non-white person, particularly the black person, carries a quality, therefore, that sort of drags them down to the next ontological level. Which is why even the basic act of a black British-born person of African descent, such as myself, would find it really difficult to identify or call myself English. As Toni Morrison, the late great Toni Morrison, points out, Americanness definitionally means whiteness. And so very much, in my opinion, does Englishness, Scottishness, Frenchness, and generally Europeanness. Moving away from the person, let's now look at how Mills defines space and geography. Mills asserts that in the traditional social contract, there is more than one type of the state of nature. There is the European state of nature, and then there's the non-European state of nature. In fact, to this point, Mills says, the European state of nature is a generally tamer affair, a kind of garden gone to seed, which may need some clipping, but it is really already partially domesticated and just requires a few modifications to be appropriately transformed and is a testimony, therefore, to the superior moral characteristics of the space and its inhabitants. So naturally, European spaces, even in the state of nature, are pretty much without any massive errors. They're, they're civil and they just need a little bit of fine tuning. Whereas the non-European state of nature in comparison is a wild and racialized place that was originally characterized as cursed with a theological blight as well as being seen as an unholy land. In this way, the social contract theory brought morality to, to spaces geographically. There was a battle almost to end savagery with this contract, with this agreement, which could only be achieved by bringing European customs and ideals to all corners of the world. Now, I'll stop there when it comes to Mills, because I really could go on all day. You really should try and seek out the racial contract essay by Dr. Charles Mills whenever you can. Give it a read because it goes into so much more detail than I could ever cover here. We've looked at how the social contract didn't explicitly consider or aim to protect the rights of all races, because as a Western project, race was not relevant to the theory. And we've looked at space in that the social contract theory is really only concerned with the European space. And we've seen that perhaps for Locke and Rousseau, during the eras in which they lived, there wasn't really a high level of social consciousness or the type of human rights in which we've come to know in our modern times. What then does this all mean for the very constitutions upon which we live in? In a British context, this is actually really difficult to answer because we don't have a written constitution. We're one of the only countries in the world with an unwritten constitution. And this is because in, in Britain's history, there's never really been a need to write down all the, the building blocks of British law. And since there's never been a need to have one single document, it has to be surmised that the British constitution is pretty much li lying in these eight words. 
what the queen in parliament enacts is law so the ultimate power is whatever the democratically elected parliament create or abolish in terms of laws right so if there are no single british constitution uh, to look at then we must then look to the acts of laws of the uk and how they apply today does the modern social contract in the context of the western hemisphere truly consider the position of the non-white well if we look at acts and regulations it can be said that many concessions can and have been made for non-white British citizens and therefore the modern social contract does consider the position of the non-white person. So sure it can be said but that wouldn't necessarily be true because whilst the spirit of the law says it's wrong to discriminate on the grounds of race for example, racially motivated hate crime is only on the rise and has steadily been so since 2012. Regardless of the existence of legislation, race hate crime continues to be recorded at high levels across British police forces throughout the UK. It was in 1965 when Parliament enacted the Race Relations Act, the first piece of British legislation addressing racial discrimination. And thankfully, the Act brought with it the outlawing of discrimination on the grounds of colour, race or ethnic or national origins in public spaces in Great Britain. It also made a civil, not criminal, offence to refuse a person service or to serve someone with unreasonable delay or to overcharge on the grounds of colour, race or ethnic or national origins. The Act also created the offence of incitement to racial hatred. However, the Act was repealed in 1976, and after that, the Act was amended in 2000 to include broader definitions of public authorities and require both public and private organisations to, to promote race equality. Now, this is all well and good, but by 2010, there was a slight dilution to the Act. Suddenly, it was decided that the Equality Act would replace and combine a number of prior acts, including the Race Relations Act. And this would protect against age, disability, gender, religion and sexual orientation. Now, the decision to make discrimination on the grounds of race a civil offence and not a criminal offence is something that I took issue with during my research for this episode because there are some key differences between the two which boil down to the type of offence incurred. Civil offences cover family disputes, personal injury cases, breaches of contract or employment law issues, whereas what constitutes a, crime, a criminal offence are far more serious offences such as burglary, theft, arson, assault, sexual assault, murder, fraud and money laundering, as well as drug dealing. All of the criminal offences, with the exception of the last two, that is fraud and money laundering, aside from those two, all those offences can occur on the grounds of race completely. And so in treating race discrimination as a civil offence, the act in place aiming to protect race doesn't really go far enough. But thankfully, in 2007, a common definition of hate crime was agreed by the police, CPS, that's the Crown Prosecution Service, the prison service and other agencies making up the criminal justice system. And it was agreed that hate crimes would be described as or would be any criminal offences which were perceived by the victim or any other person to be motivated by hostility or prejudice towards someone based on a personal characteristic. Such strides have long been overdue, in my opinion, and it was only until 2014 that further strides were made when there was an increase in the number of hate crimes recorded by the police in England and Wales. 
in response to this, my question is, were less racially motivated hate crimes being recorded in police forces because of the overwhelming majority of perpetrators of such crimes tending to be young white males? Well, prior to the improvements by the Home Office Data Hub, there used to be relatively large levels of under-recording. And perhaps with recording improvements, it's now much harder to under-record the frequency of a crime which is largely attributed to white British men. So whilst there are acts and legislation in place to protect on the grounds of race, the recording of this crime has for a long time been left to the discretion of police forces leading to historically low levels of recording of racially motivated crime. Now, this is a terrible indictment to me of any government trying to prove that they uphold the rights of, and liberties of all people, especially those of different races. And that the Home Office, a government department, only recently begun requiring police to provide more detailed information on matters which largely and disproportionately affect non-white British citizens is an ex example, therefore, of the modern social contracts failing to fully realise the minority non-white in the majority white space. Not only that, but the statistic I glossed over a few moments ago that racially motivated hate crime is increasing is a chilling reminder that the UK is still holding on to its white supremacist past. For all offences that occur in the UK, race hate crimes account for around three quarters of, of those offences and following certain events there are usually short-term genuine rises in hate crime such as the increase that we saw directly following the 2016 eu referendum the rise in hate crime crime against minorities in the uk shows the consequences of a society which never truly enveloped or included these people into the fabric of society for many non-white british communities or people in our current age the idea of fully being part of british society has always felt alien and felt exclusive especially for those of us with visibly different hues the phrase fabric of society speaks to the notion that all members of society work to make it successful well let's look at a group then who actually were called over to help make the uk great and help make the national health service work in the 50s, there was the Windrush generation, and recently the Windrush scandal has come to light, in which there is no doubt a massive racial element in the mistreatment of people who had come to help a country they considered home, or even the mother country. Instead, based on race, the Windrush generation were caught up in measures designed for people who have no right to be in the UK. A scandal which the only entity we can point blame at is a government department. Then there's the matter of unethical practices of loading British citizens onto secret charter flights to Nigeria, Ghana and India. Then there's the rise of racism in schools across the UK which is which has led to children whitening their skin to avoid racial hate in an attempt to try to fit in. This is only one of the many latest pieces of evidence to suggest a rise in racism in British society. And then we turn to the hundreds of cases of police brutality against black people in both the UK and the US. And here it is a challenge in any good faith to conclude that the functions of either the British or American government go to any great lengths to protect for the black person or non-white person generally, or to pursue for them to be part of any real social fabric. Given just how often we see callous, senseless murders such as that of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and the most recent unfortunate death of an unarmed black man, George Floyd, 
in the US state of Minneapolis. And closer to home, we see the overuse of tasers on the black body, as in the case of Chavali Wise, and footage of a West Midlands police officer beating a 15-year-old black boy and beating a 44-year-old black cyclist just one day before. The excessive force with which police forces use against black people in the UK promotes a sense that, that the racial social contract only exists between native Brits and no one else. Now, in response to this phenomenon of racism, there is still so much scope for improvement in terms of how our government seeks to tackle it. So in answer to the question of the episode, to whom does the social contract apply on the grounds of race? Well, my verdict is, in theory, every person of every race is supposed to be part of the modern social contract in Britain. But in practice, only a certain group are fully realised in this way. Right, so if you've enjoyed listening to this episode and want to understand more about the racial implications of the social contract, then for this week's recommendation to acknowledge the recent um, unlawful, unfair and completely abhorrent killing of George Floyd in the US, I think it's important that we look at racial justice. And so I'd like to point listeners to the Tanner Lecture on Human Values held at the University of Michigan. The lecture was given very recently by the subject of today's episode, Dr. Charles W. Mills, and it's entitled Theorising Racial Justice, based on Dr. Mills's 2018 essay titled Racial Justice. This is, in my opinion, a really brilliant talk that goes deeply into the crux of what racial justice should look like. It's over an hour long, including Q&As, but it's really worth it. But if you like your stuff shorter and in snappier forms, then I'd also like to point you to a 2010 talk, also by Dr Mills, given at King's College University in London, on the racist roots of liberalism. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. In the next part of To Whom Does a Social Contract Apply?, I'll be discussing the role of women and trying to understand what considerations were made for women in the social contract and how this has evolved over time. As always, subscribe, share and support. Find me, Jackie Courtney, on Twitter at Jack Courtney. And please give the podcast a follow at Contract Today on Twitter as well. All right then, that's all. I'll see you soon. Bye.